Hello and welcome to the second episode of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today we are going to talk about the murder of 20-year-old Benaz Mahmood. She was murdered by her family in what is largely referenced as an honour killing. And I know that Sal and I have quite similar views on this and that maybe you do too. We have a problem with the phrase honour killing. The law has a word for it. It's murder. Uh, We sometimes feel that calling it an honour killing is a sort of obscene justification from the killers for, for why they did what they did. But we don't want people to think that we think it's a justification. It's largely called an honour killing. In all the reportings, it's called an honour killing. And so that is what we will be calling it today. Honour killings are not spontaneous killings, it is organised crime and it is almost always carried out by the men in a family, usually upon a female victim who the family see as having brought dishonour to the family. It's important to note that this is not just prevalent in Muslim cultures, however it is certainly more common due to the very strict and old-fashioned views of some Muslim communities. Additionally, there are some Muslim countries such as Jordan where honour killings are either legal or minimally punished. In one documentary I watched, a quote was used that quite aptly sums up how these men feel about the women in their culture. The quote is, Man is a piece of gold and woman is a piece of silk. If you drop gold in the mud, you can wipe it off. But if you drop silk in the mud, it is stained forever. So it's this view that women can so easily ruin who they are and taint themselves by exercising their own autonomy, by choosing who they want their partner to be, or by refusing to be forced into an arranged marriage. And then the only thing to do is discard of her because she is damaging the prestige of the family name and she is bringing dishonour to the family. A report from the United Nations Population Fund estimated that at least 5,000 women are killed every year for reasons of honour. And unfortunately, in 2006, Benaz Mahmood was one of these women. Benaz Mahmood was born in Iraq in 1985. She had one brother and four sisters, and they all, along with their mother and father, came to England in 1995 as asylum seekers, escaping Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Benaz appeared to have no social network. She had no friends that the police ever found. In the documentary I watched, the producers appealed for friends of Benaz's to come forward, but nobody did. She was completely isolated. She had just her family, and she was battling the constant pressures of her Iraqi Kurdish background whilst being immersed in British culture and British schooling. Benaz's father, Mahmoud Mahmoud, was the eldest of his brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Why laughing? Mahmoud Mahmoud. <laughs> he has got the same first name as surname. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> it just sounds like um, you made a mistake there now. <laughs> Mahmoud Mahmoud. <laughs> right, sorry. <laughs> it's fine. So he was the eldest of his brothers. Um, it was his younger brother, Ari Mahmood, however, who called the shots in their family because he was the most wealthy. Seeking refuge in a Western culture can result in a sort of diminished status for men. In Iraq, the family were very wealthy. They had properties and various businesses, but here in England, they had nothing. Therefore, there comes a sort of intensification where they want to appear strong and in control. And as a result, they project this control onto their wives, sisters and daughters and try to control every aspect of their life. So don't get me wrong, if they had stayed in Iraq, this control would still have happened, but it's so much more intense here in England because there are so many other factors at play, mainly the total difference in British culture. Yeah, so I think this is what in sociology I've heard them call a crisis of masculinity. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, it's completely that. And it's because women have so much autonomy here and um, Mahmoud's daughters saw this. They saw women in real life and on TV not having to obey the men in their lives and they wanted this kind of freedom too. There are so many ways in which Mahmoud tried to control his daughters, and one of these ways was to attempt to control their sexuality. 
Bakul, who is uh, Banaz's older sister, recalled a time when she was eight years old and she saw her sisters being dragged into her grandmother's bedroom. They were stripped from the waist down. The men in her family, so this would be um, their father, uncle and cousins, performed circumcisions on the girls with a knife. <sighs> Apart from the youngest daughter in the family, all three of the older sisters were circumcised. So the entire point of this is to attempt to stop these women from feeling any kind of sexual feeling. But obviously it's not done surgically and there's also no scientific evidence behind this sort of circumcision working or being beneficial or hygienic or anything towards these girls. Although this story is about Banaz, I think it's important to get a good understanding of her sister Bakul's story too, so that we can really understand the struggles that the girls were facing in this family. So as the girls got older, Mahmoud's controlling behaviour continued. Bakul was told that she wasn't allowed her nails long, she wasn't allowed to wear perfume, and she wasn't allowed to pluck her eyebrows. Mahmoud tried to force Bakul to go to Iraq to marry one of her cousins. She was just 16 years old. However, she was so determined to not be forced into this arranged marriage that she ran away from home. Mahmoud tried to get Bakul to return home, but she wouldn't. This had a serious impact for Mahmoud in the Kurdish Muslim community they lived in in London. Mahmoud started to look like a failure. In the community's eyes, he was the man who could not control what his daughters were doing. A lot of Westerners, I think, can't really fully grasp what it means to have a big collective family and a family reputation. Your name is synonymous with your reputation and how you're perceived by others. And I think that's a real key point there is that it's not a justification at all. But actually, this is, as you say, particularly difficult to understand coming from a more Western community uh -huh. where generally we're quite individualistic in our nature. Whereas you go pretty much anywhere else in the world, in fact, and you do find it's these really collectivist communities where pride, etc., is placed so much above everything else. And when you pair that with women having little to no rights, you can sort of see how being in this new environment over in the UK and suddenly his daughter surveying him like that, how very quickly a situation might escalate. Exactly. And it really goes back to what you said about everything here being quite individualist. So in these sort of like Muslim communities, if there is a woman in your family not behaving as she should, then this doesn't just reflect badly on the woman, it reflects badly on the entire family. And that is something that is just not common in this country at all or in communities here. Um, and unfortunately, by Bakul not going to Iraq to marry one of her cousins and then running away from home, she was tainting their family name and the reputation of their family in this Kurdish community. So in 2002, the family tried to restore this honour that they felt that they had lost due to Bakul's actions. Although Bakul had moved out, she was still in contact with her brother. She spoke to him regularly on the phone, and on one occasion, he managed to persuade her to meet him. In one of the documentaries I watched, Bacall recalled how her brother had been carrying a suitcase and he asked her to take it. He told her to take the suitcase and walk down the street ahead of him. He told her not to turn around. He then hit her on the back of the head with a dumbbell. As Bacall fell to the floor, her brother hooked his arm around her neck and pulled her back up. She was screaming and kicking and trying to push him off her. She managed to bite him in the crook of his arm and he let go. Bakul fell to the floor on her back and as she tried to push herself backwards, her brother grabbed her legs and started dragging her across the ground. She kicked at him and screamed at him and she shouted at him, What are you doing? You're trying to kill me. At this point, Bakul recalls him letting go of her legs and he burst into tears. She said that as he sobbed, he said, After doubt, I'm the man of the family and I have to put an end to this shame. He admitted that Mahmoud, their father, had paid Bakul's brother to get rid of the problem and the way to do that was by killing Bakul. And this is his oldest daughter, right? Yeah. So this is um. So this story obviously is about Banaz, but this is her. This is her oldest sister. 
Okay, so he's already with his first daughter, his first experience of raising one, gone to what we would consider to be an extreme of human behaviour. Precisely. So this all happened before the death of Benaz and the horrors that happened to her. But it does, it does, like you say, it shows how serious this family were about protecting their name and their reputation. Yeah. Bacall left home so that she wouldn't have to be forced into a marriage. That is all that she did. She made one decision for herself and for her life. And that was genuinely enough of a reason for Mahmoud, her father, to want her dead. And not only want her dead, but enough to pay his own son, Bacall's own brother, to kill her. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't imagine, well, I don't know, at this point as well, that had she changed her mind, doesn't sound like it would be a very welcoming environment to, to go back to. I mean, she must have been incredibly frightened to run away in the first place, mm-hmm. never mind to consider trying to reconcile. It is it's so frightening. Bacall is still alive now, but she's in hiding because of what happens, what goes on to happen in this story. But she's an incredibly, incredibly brave woman. So now that we have that background, I'm going to now talk about Benaz and what was happening in her life when all of this was going on in her sister's life. Benaz was married at the age of 17 to a man named Ali. It was an arranged marriage and she met him just once before their wedding. He was flown in from Iraq and had an extremely close tie to his Kurdish Muslim culture, the culture that Mahmoud was trying so hard to get his daughters to adhere to. Benaz and Ali had literally nothing in common and there was an 11 year age gap between them. Marriage in these circumstances can, of course, be incredibly isolating. Usually the wife will move in with her husband and his relatives and his family, and she is just there to serve him. And the purpose of these marriages really is to build the status of the family. Whether Benaz was happy or not would have literally been of no consideration to her father when he arranged it. So how do you go about setting up something like this then? Was he already living in the UK or had he come over from Iraq just specifically for the marriage? Um, good question. I don't actually know how it happened in this situation, but what usually happens is um, the men of the family, so usually the dad of the daughter and the uncle of the daughter, um, who they want to find a husband for, will have ties to other communities who practice that same sort of um, Islamic religion that they practice. So, for example, when my cousins have had arranged marriages, they've had them through either marrying other cousins or marrying people who the family knows. It's all about that family reputation and upholding that family reputation and making sure that the man is the right person for the woman. So in this situation, um, because he came over from Iraq, Ali would have been a member of a family that they knew from Iraq. They would have been put together because he benefited uh, the Mahmoud family name, not because obviously it was the right choice for Benaz or anything like that. Right, okay. So it's all about kind of social climbing and status, like you say. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So after two years of marriage, in 2005, Benaz went to the police to report her husband's treatment of her. This next bit of detail about Benaz and what she was going through actually comes directly from Benaz. In one of the documentaries I watched, the recording of the police interview was played and it was genuinely so unbelievably sad to see her sat there describing what she was going through and knowing now that she didn't survive this horrendous ordeal. So in the police interview, Benaz is asked to describe her marriage from the very early stages. As a direct quote, Benaz said, He was thinking like he was 50 years back. He was a strict husband. Whenever he wanted to have sex, it was just his way, always his way. Whenever I said no, he wouldn't take no for an answer. He would just start raping me and do what he wanted to do. I tried to stop him, but he would just slap me or hit me on the back or pull me by my hair. She then goes on to say, he said he would kill me if I said anything to anyone. 
She said this started at the beginning of their marriage. She was just 17 years old. She goes on to say that the rape would happen in the bedroom or the living room. And she said that she didn't know if it was normal because she was so young. She just thought that it was part of the culture and part of being married. And that is so genuinely heartbreaking because she really didn't realize it was rape at the time. She honestly thought that she was just supposed to accept it. And uh, the way she describes it is awful. She said, it was like I was his shoe and he would just wear it whenever he felt like it. God, that's horrible. And for any child, I mean, I'm sure that marriage has different connotations in every culture, but actually, presumably she's grown up seeing her parents and who knows, may have been shielded from some of this, but Mm -hmm. I think you'd probably struggle to find any girl, especially one that's probably been exposed to westernised themes, who doesn't look forward in some part to finding a husband and Mm -hmm. love and things, and actually for this to be your experience at such a young age of 17 is just heartbreaking and I think it speaks volumes about how young and innocent she was that she didn't even recognise that it was wrong what was happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as well as raping her, he beat her repeatedly as well. She was told by Ali that if anyone saw her and asked her what happened, that she was to say that she had just fallen down in the bathroom. I mean, honestly, like, just what a prick. He completely alienated this poor girl. He honestly made her feel like he was the only person that she had and that she couldn't talk to anyone about what she was going through. And he already has the ultimate control over her. I mean, she's got very little status in her religion anyway. And she's much younger than him, much more vulnerable. Yeah. And so at this point, you can't really see the need for him to take it a step further and just completely dehumanise her and, and mm-hmm. physically abuse her. So Bacall visited Bernard's during this time and remarked that Bernard's looked really run down. Banaz said that she was not enjoying her life. All she was doing was cooking and cleaning and whatever else Ali told her to do. In police interviews with Banaz, she spoke about a time they had guests over to the house. So um, in strict Islamic culture, wives are not to call their husbands by their first names, especially in front of other people. But at this dinner party, Banaz called Ali by his name in front of the guests they had over. And once they had left, Ali said that if she ever did it again, even if there were guests around, he would stick a knife into her. Jesus. It's just, oh, you can't really imagine, can you, such a simple slip up? Just like, yeah, he, she just called him by his name. That is just, it's the level of control and the amount of control he has over her is just, it's so terrifying. So as often happens in situations like this, the abuse continued to get worse and worse. Bernard began to write down incidences of particularly awful beatings and occasionally took photos of her injuries. Ali found the diary in which she documented all of this and he destroyed it. After he found the diary, he kicked her repeatedly in the head until her mouth, nose and ears were all bleeding. He then twisted her arm so badly that it broke. He did not let her seek medical attention. And as a result, the bones in her wrist fused back together in the wrong position. And Sal, it's honestly awful. But in this police interview, you can see the bone on her wrist sticking out. It looks so unimaginably painful. Yeah. Oh, that just sounds awful. The abuse continued like this. Banaz began to suffer memory loss due to the beatings to her skull. She tried incredibly hard to keep the rape and the abuse a secret from her family and attempted to continue to be a good wife. However, one of her sisters found out and spoke to her family about the horrors that Banaz was suffering. Mahmoud questioned Ali about the beatings and, shockingly, Ali admitted that it was all true. However, he told Mahmoud that the reasons that he beat Banaz was because she was disrespectful And he told Mahmoud that he never raped Banaz, he simply forced himself upon her when she said no. Which is definitely the definition of rape. Absolutely. And then you think, well, what does rape mean to you then? If you acknowledge Mm -hmm. it's a word, 
you can't even imagine what he thinks that means if if not that and also though so at this point i'm wondering she might be trying to keep it a secret but how her family not noticing are they not seeing her a lot or yeah so i think that she was incredibly isolated i think she mainly saw his family and she didn't she didn't see her family that much at all which is why Bacall was so shocked when she went round and saw Banaz and said that she looked basically completely run down and really unlike herself. Mm. So Banaz tried again to make her marriage work. She continued to cook and clean for Ali and put up with his relentless abuse. On one particular occasion, after giving Ali his dinner, he told her to go and look in the mirror. He asked her to look at how ugly and skinny she had become. He told her that she looked like a whore. Banaz was so upset that she took Ali's mobile and rang her mother. She screamed down the phone that she wanted a divorce. She packed a few of her personal items and then left the home for good. Mm. And to be honest, like I guess it sort of goes without saying, but women do not leave their husbands in strict Islamic culture. No, absolutely. It brings the highest form of shame. The culture is all about a passive woman and a controlling man. And Banaz leaving Ali completely destroyed the Mahmoud family name. Here in England, amongst the Kurdish Muslim community, but also back in Iraqi Kurdistan. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you said just then that she packed her bags, I kind of already felt nervous when you were saying it, just based on what we've already heard about. Mm -hmm. So in 2005, Banaz met Rukmut. They started as just friends, but this shortly led to a relationship, and Banaz was really beginning to feel happy again. This really did feel like a fresh start for Banaz. The two planned to have children, and they even started picking out names. Um, the police, in one of their searches, recovered an abundance of texts between Banaz and Rukmut. For example, on the 7th of January 2006, she texts Rukmut saying, I love you, Rukmut, my life. You are my inspiration for getting up every day. You are the reason I'm living today. So she's just so happy and she's so content and this is exactly the type of love that she deserves. I mean, you know, it's like it's the type of love that anyone deserves, but especially Banaz after all the abuse she's been put through by Ali. But how has she managed to get away from Ali and her family then? So she went back and she lived with her parents for a little bit. Um, there was obviously quite a lot of tension regarding this, but for the best part, her mum sort of understood and had her back and um, she lived in the family house. But then when she met Rukmut, their relationship did progress into a full-blown um, love, I guess you would call it. At this point, they're meeting up with each other outside of the house and they are keeping their relationship a secret at this point. Okay. So unfortunately, though, this newfound love brought with it a lot of anxiety. Bernard was convinced that she was being followed by men and one time a man followed her in his car and shouted at her that she should get in for a lift. Banaz was convinced that her husband Ali was having her followed. She was so certain that something bad was going to happen that she went to the police station and it's uh, that footage that I saw in the documentary. So the documentary is called Banaz, A Love Story. Um, if anyone wants to check it out, I will put the link in the description box and I do really recommend it. Banaz went to the police station and she told them that she was speaking to the police to let them know that her husband was having her followed. She said to the police officer, in the future or at any time, if anything happens to me, it's them. Banaz went to the police a total of five times over her concerns for her safety and fears that her life was in danger. And I think that's the one of the things to bear in mind about abusive relationships and, well, any crime really, is that the crime and the effect of it doesn't just happen for in real time, you know, so when she was experiencing these awful things. But actually the traumatic stress will, will stay with people forever. Yeah. Oh, completely. So she was facing so much anxiety over this that she went to the police a total of five times 
But what is so chilling and horrible is that after her death, a police inquiry was undertaken and it was found that after Bernard's statement to them, the police did nothing. They made no attempt to try and locate Ali or speak to her family or anything. She went to the police five times and the police did not investigate any of her claims. And why do you think that is though? Do you think it was a reluctance to get involved in the culture? Do you think because I suppose just a few years ago, a lack of resource or the fact she was a woman, I mean... You'd think after maybe the third time, well, you'd hope after the first time, but you'd sure as hell think after the third time that they might start to take this seriously, if for no other reason than to protect their own backs. I think it's, I think it is largely to do with the community. I think it's also the community that they were in in London, so it's quite a heavily populated Islamic area. I think um, the police just want to kind of stick to what they know, and they don't know this sort of strong religious culture i guess you would call it and with regards to them wanting to protect their own backs the first time she went into the police it took them five months to write up that statement so she came in and she gave her statement about what was happening and it took the officer five months to write that up and to be honest there is no evidence again like to suggest that this is true but i really feel like it was only done after she was found dead and in that situation it was to protect themselves because every time she came in nobody wrote up what was happening so they had nothing to link it to so each time people just thought you know it's a new officer interviewing her each time they just thought that it was just a new statement i guess or a new case they had nothing to suggest that it was linked that's just shocking and you can only hope that it led to a big overhaul or at least a serious review about how these sorts of cases are handled it's what's so difficult for me to comprehend is that the first thing you do is call the police. If you're worried about something, if you feel like your life is in danger, the people you talk to are the police. And they didn't do anything. Yeah, and it takes huge courage even to do that, to take that first step and call the police. And yeah, I think it's just a shocking thought that she did that and the help and relief that she was expecting never came. Mm-hmm. absolutely i couldn't agree more i think that that is what's so terrifying it would have taken her so much courage to do this and she thought that she was doing the right thing and she was pointing the finger at the people who she thought was were going to harm her and she even said you know like i said earlier she even said if something happens to me it's them and actually we later go on to find out that her interviews at this point and the letters that she writes to the police and the statements that she makes are what lead um the police to her killer so during this time, Banaz and Rukmut attempted to keep their relationship a secret, like I said earlier. However, in December of 2005, they were spotted kissing outside Morden Tube Station. Now, remember at the start, I said that although Mukmud was the eldest, his brother Ari was seen as the sort of head of the family. Yeah. So the person who spotted uh, Banaz and Rukmut kissing called Ari and told him, uh, what they'd seen his niece doing outside the tube station and it was this phone call that really sort of started everything and started this escalation because Ari Mahmood called a family meeting he invited all the men in the family over and the decision was made Ari instructed the younger members of the family that he wanted them to kill Banaz mm. on New Year's Eve 2006 Banaz was summoned to her grandmother's house her father made Banaz carry in a suitcase and plied her with brandy Mahmoud told Banaz to sit on the sofa and look at the TV and to not turn around. Banaz, however, did turn around and she saw her father coming up behind her wearing rubber gloves. In that instant, Banaz knew he was going to kill her. She sprung up off the sofa and against all odds, she managed to escape out the back door. She ran through the back gardens and climbed over fences and she stuck her hand through open windows in an attempt to gain someone's attention. She found an open cafe and collapsed onto the floor. 
the staff called an ambulance. The hospital staff who treated her said that they had never seen anyone so frightened. Rugmud was called from the hospital and when he saw the state Banaz was in, he got his phone and recorded her while she told him what happened. So this is a direct quote from Banaz on what happened that night from the video, um, but in the video she's speaking Kurdish. But she says, I drank something I had never drunk before. He bought me a drink in a black bag. I opened it and he said, drink it slowly, slowly. The curtains were closed. It was very dark. He went out the room and then came back in the room wearing Reebok trainers. He was wearing gloves. He told me to sit down because I will fall sleepy. I sat down until he went to another room. I looked at the back door and there was a key in it. I removed the key and ran into the back garden. So I'm not police bashing here. I understand that it is a horrendously intense job. I am sure there are so many times the police do look into things and they've turned out to be fake or a hoax. And I understand that fully. But fucking hell, Sal, the policewoman who came and saw Bernard's in hospital after this night didn't believe a word she said. She thought Bernard's was just a girl from a strict community who had been caught drinking and didn't want to get in trouble. So she had made this whole story up. It's just shocking, isn't it? And this is the second point at which if someone had got involved the ending could have been incredibly different. Mm -hmm. She can't be trying any harder than she is to get the attention of someone who could potentially help her, and no No. one is helping her. And it's not like this isn't uh, an acknowledged issue. It might not be hugely present, I don't know, but it's something that I think everybody knows happens. Exactly. Unfortunately, it gets worse. So... Not only did this policewoman not believe a word Bernard's had said and therefore refused to investigate it, she went one step further and informed Bernard's father that Bernard's was making these allegations against him, which of course put Bernard's in an even more dangerous situation. They took Bernard's back to her parents' house and took her statement in front of her family, in front of the people she was making these really serious complaints about. At this age as well, she must be 18, is she? Yes, yeah, she is. So she's um, she's 20 at this point. It just seems like a huge violation then of her her rights. I've never heard of anything or any situation where the police take someone to go take their statement at the house of the people they're accusing of this like really quite severe crime. I've no. never heard of a situation like this at all. It's barbaric. And I don't think that the fact they thought they were taking her to her family is any excuse either. I mean, a huge amount of crime is committed by a perpetrator who's known to the victim, so a family member. Yeah. So it just seems shocking that they would do this. Mm-hmm. So after this, Banaz went and lived with Rukmut for a bit. She remarked that if she ran away, she was dead, and if she went home, she was dead. And unfortunately, she wasn't wrong. Banaz's family managed to convince her to meet them. She met them at McDonald's in Tooting, and they persuaded her to come home. And I think, to be honest, at this point, Banaz really believed that her mother would be able to save her. She went home and she lived with her family again for a little bit. She attempted to end her relationship with Rukmut. However, the breakup didn't last very long. She sent Rukmut a text on the 23rd of January 2006 saying, Just be careful, Rukmut, Jian, please, because I don't think I could live a second without you. I love you so much. And that was followed by lots of kisses. So uh, Gian is a sort of uh, term of endearment. It kind of means like my love, my soul, that kind of thing. So even though they knew that them being together puts them at risk, as you can see, to Bernard's, it was all worth the risk because of how she felt for him. Yeah. On the 25th of January, 2006, just two days after she sent that text, Rukmat reported Bernard's as missing. Now, I know we have given 
the police quite a bit of stick in this episode, but <laughs> I do have to say the team in charge of Bernaz's disappearance were brilliant. Detective Chief Inspector Caroline Good knew from the outset that, given the circumstances, it was likely that Bernaz was in serious danger. They, so the police, faced so much adversity from the Kurdish community. They spoke to hundreds of people within the community, but none of them would tell them anything. The community threw so many red herrings at the police. They gave false confessions and told the police that Banaz was still alive. And of course, this was incredibly difficult and time-consuming for the police to decipher which statements might have held some weight and which were false. However, they did have one report that Banaz's body was buried underneath a freezer. So the police became aware that Banaz had an older sister who had been estranged from the family. This was, of course, Bakal. And when Bakal was made aware um, of the fact that Banaz was missing, she told the police with complete certainty that it was the men in her family who had done this. Shortly after this, members of the community set out to try and find Bakal and managed to get hold of her phone number. They rang her and they told her that she would be the next one to die. The police really did an amazing job here because they moved Bacall from house to house constantly to stop these people from finding her because obviously they had her phone number and they were giving her these like death threats. So during this time, Bacall informed one officer that Bernard had made reports to the police before. The police looked into these previous reports and shockingly, they found a letter that Bernard had written that detailed the names of members of her family that she knew were willing to kill her. In her letter, she wrote that the men who were willing to do the job for her father were Omar Hussein, Muhammad Ali and Muhammad Hamar. Muhammad Hamar was arrested first for Banaz's murder. This was an incredibly tricky moment in time for the police uh, because they had a suspect in custody and they had very limited time to keep him before they made the decision to charge him or release him. And they had almost no evidence because they didn't have a body. They couldn't even prove that Banaz was dead or had been murdered, let alone that Muhammad Hamar was responsible. However, Muhammad Hamar drove a hire car and this would be his downfall. The hire car had GPS tracking installed and the police used this to check all the places that he had driven to and from. They saw that he had been frequently travelling to and from Birmingham and London. The police used a helicopter to video the places that Muhammad had driven and in one of those videos, they spotted a freezer in someone's back garden. Oh my god. The police took a forensic archaeologist to Birmingham to the spot where the freezer was and he quickly deemed that the ground had recently been disturbed. This was enough for the police to dig, and five feet underground they came to a suitcase. Banaz was curled up inside the suitcase in a fetal position. Mahmoud and Ari were both arrested. Both Mahmoud and Ari vehemently denied that they had anything to do with the murder and blamed it on the other three men. Mahmoud tried to claim that he was westernised and loving and feigned shock at the fact that Banaz was even dead. The real nail in the coffin, however, for these men was Bakal. Despite the unimaginable amount of risk in doing so, at the trial she got up on the stand and testified against her own family. Banaz was murdered on the morning of the 24th of January 2006. Muhammad Ali and Omar Hussain met Muhammad Hamar at his house and they made their way to Banaz's home in Morden. Banaz's mother and father left the family home and left Banaz alone. The men entered the house, burst into the room and woke Banaz. What happened next is horrific. Uh, Banaz was raped and tortured for more than two hours. One of the men made a recording after the event and in it he is joking and laughing with the other men about what they had done to Banaz. They talk in explicit detail about the way in which they killed Banaz. There is a transcript of this recording, but honestly I think it's probably just far too graphic for this episode. I felt physically sick reading and listening to bits of it and I don't really think we need to go into a lot of detail about it, but it is out there if you yourselves want to take a look. Uh, but in short, they raped her repeatedly, they beat her, they kicked her in the head, and then they eventually strangled her with a thick cord. The strangling took four to five minutes, and the men said that Banaz did not make a sound. 
In the recording, the men can be heard saying that Ari had lied to them. He had told the men that nobody else would be home, but someone was. That was Banaz and Bakar's youngest sister. Uh, I do know her name, but I don't really think that we should mention it in this episode because I think, to be honest, that the poor girl's been through enough. But this recording was enough to kind of pin Ari uh, to the crime because they basically admitted in it that they'd been sent there under Ari's orders. So Ari and Mahmoud were both given life sentences for arranging the murder of Banaz Mahmoud. Mohammed Hamar pleaded guilty and he also received a life sentence. Omar Hussein and Muhammad Ali had fled the country before Banaz was even reported missing. They had escaped to Iraq, a country they thought they'd be safe and would never be extradited back to the UK from. Omar Hussein actually had immense protection in Iraq. His brother was a very senior police officer and uh, he was being protected there in his brother's house, so basically nobody could touch him. However, just when the police thought all hope was lost, Omar Hussein got in a fight with his brother and ended up getting shot in the leg with an AK-47. He, of course, had to go to hospital and it was at hospital that he was arrested. Omar Hussein told the Iraqi police that it wasn't him and that they got the wrong Omar Hussein and he shouldn't be extradited. But DCI Carolyn Good would not take this as defeat, so her team flew out to Iraq to bring Omar Hussein back. By 2010, both Muhammad Ali and Omar Hussein were extradited back to the UK. This had actually never been done before. No Iraqi national um, had ever been extradited back to the UK for criminal offences. No, I was going to say that this sounds an amazing amount of resource, and rightly so, being invested into something that actually a lot of the time, as I think we learned earlier, people turn a blind eye to. I think it sounds like it sets such an important precedent that actually you can't just go back to somewhere where the crime you've committed isn't a crime in order to escape what you've done. Precisely. And both men were given life sentences. So all five men involved in the killing of Banaz um, are now serving life sentences in prison, which is just amazing. And that's so good to see after kind of everything that happened at the beginning of this case, where she really was failed by institutions who were meant to be there to protect her. Yeah, it's a very small piece of right and justice and a story that, frankly, has just been harrowing. Completely. So, Bacall is still in hiding after testifying against her family. She has no freedom. She wears a veil whenever she leaves the house um, in the hopes that nobody will be able to identify her. She said that she would never regret running away. If she had stayed, she said she would be dead, buried in the back garden. She says the only thing she will ever regret is that she didn't take Banaz with her. Gosh, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? Absolutely. So, obviously, there is, like you say, a small silver lining to all this, that the men ended up in prison and they're not there to hurt any of the other women in their family. And it did set a precedent that you can't just escape back to the country that you came from to um, not face the crimes that you've committed here. I think that is so important. and I'm glad a small silver lining came from this. And I hope that the police really looked at this case and realised that there is some form of um, maybe not institutionalised racism, maybe that's a bit of an extreme term for it, but there is a naivety when it comes to um, crimes within Islamic culture and big Islamic communities. And that if someone comes to you and they say that they need help, it, you know, you need to look into it and keep vigilant, keep your eyes open. And if you think that someone around you is suffering, that you make someone who can help aware of that. Yeah. I think the thing that just shocks me so much with this is that in a culture where the smallest, smallest of wrongdoings 
if committed by a woman is so severely punished, so mistakenly not calling your husband by your last name, is simultaneously mm-hmm. a community that will defend the most depraved acts. Uh, if as long as it's a man, I think it's just such a stark example, this case, of how forgiving they are of one gender. And I think the other thing that really strikes you about this type of killing is that we think of murderers as either depraved lunatics or people full of hate and revenge. But actually, what's so different here is that this is a family killing one of their own, Mm -hmm. a completely innocent person in this. And I appreciate it's very hard for us to understand the connotations of pride and honour, but it just makes you realise, actually, doesn't it, that murder and and doing something awful and and not even just the murder you know the tortures and the rapes Mm -hmm. that actually it doesn't necessarily take the kind of person that we think of when we think of a murderer it it just takes a completely different form of of socialization and and values for someone to do those things yeah i think the hardest thing is how isolated banas was from everyone she had no friends and she had no a support network or anything and obviously like we said you know she went she went and she reached out to the police and it didn't it didn't come of anything it didn't save her yeah absolutely and you just i'm sure that this still goes on but you just have to hope now that in a world where we're better integrated and better globalized and have a better appreciation and understanding for different cultures and things that actually never again will someone be asked for their friends to come forward and not a single person speak up exactly hopefully the police have sort of like a more understanding and more awareness of it now especially in um the sort of very heavily populated uh, muslim areas where these communities usually are Mm. Okay, so as always, the sources that I use for this episode are linked in the description box. Uh, Follow us on Instagram at infraction.thepod to see photos each week that relate to the cases we cover. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you come back and join us next week when we will be heading over to South Africa for a remarkable but slightly gory survival story. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Sal. Thanks, Nash. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 